Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of the Panjway Podcast. As always, you can find our episodes on all podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook for the video episodes. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice, and if you enjoy what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice five-star review. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to the Panjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. So remember on all three platforms, that's the Panjway podcast. P-A-N-J-W-A-I podcast. Thank you. It was funny. Luke and I had a conversation about that scene. We're like, that is a scene about the military. It really is. It really like, 100%. That's, like, just sitting around on guard with guard and something you don't even know about. You're like, can we look at it? What is it? And he's just like, <laughs> yeah. like no, you, no, you just, just pulled over a second. I want to I see. And the dude just sitting there shooting at shit. So it was like, Phew. yeah, shooting at the can or whatever. <laughs> Does he ND or something like that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, you know, the, the comps. That was the one that got me where they're just like, uh, are we ready to ready to come in yet? And they're like, "Well, um, stand by, uh, stand by." <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like my heart sunk just watching it go. Like I know what that feels like. <laughs> I know what that feels like. They should make a video game level where the opening level is you just like bouncing around base, getting paperwork oh, yeah. filled out. You know, yeah. so like, get, you get your on chopper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Drive or, to this, drive to this building, and then get out and stand in line for twenty minutes, and then watch like Grand Theft Auto. To federal employees stamps your paperwork, and then tell right. you to go to the other side of post to yeah. get that piece of paper. Oh, the complete other side of post, and you don't have a car. Yeah, so yeah. you have to walk, or you have to to time the the little shuttle right. Yeah. Then you finally oh, no. get to the no, tarmac, you... waiting for the helicopter, and the helicopter doesn't come. Yeah, because yeah. you missed a briefing. Because you missed that... a briefing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or no, you, you or you, or you don't have a helicopter, or you don't have a means to get there, so you have to bum around off your sergeant who makes you do right. push-ups. So you just push X to do push-ups. Push X <laughs> when all you're seeing is the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's just a concrete going up and down to your face. You Congratulations, know. you have arrived at Spurwingar. Your guard shift starts in 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? What? And then, and then you upgrade, and it's like Afghan private security is now pulling guard. Now you yeah. can sit in your bunk and watch you television have, for 12 hours. You have hours. unlocked private security. Yeah. <laughs> like the most I boring. Never Unlocked private security. I couldn't. We never. <laughs> Dude, we unlocked private security. We we actually we uh, we paid for the we we got the um, the pre order special. We got uh, private security built in when nice. we whenever we unloaded the game yeah, or nice. uploaded the game. We had yeah, we had they... to do our own security. We actually had security shifts in Masamgar on gate doing searches, doing like just that sucks. We had to do that shit in Iraq, and it sucked. It does suck. We we yeah. were sitting sentry at one point on the road project, which was uh, building, uh, I think, it Route Brown, Route High. I can't remember what the names of them are. But the East to West one's right Hyena. Yeah. So mm-hmm. right in behind Massengar, the one just south of Massengar that rode west. Hyena. Yeah. Hyena. Yeah. Okay. Um, they made a movie about that. It was well, a sorry, I'm movie. a few beers deep now. Like this is <laughs> one three. And, no, but so I remember sitting on Century watching the Afghans build the road. 
by hand using hand tampers, (laughs) right? Just, and literally in the eight months that I was there, they made 800 meters of road. Oof. Oof. Wait, you were a combat engineer. Why did they have you you building the road? Because we were on, we were either on, this is the thing. They came up with the idea that if they paid the Afghans to do it, it would stimulate the economy and stimulate local work, right? Mm -hmm. But, we also didn't want to give them any of our equipment. Uh, so <laughs> they had their own equipment, which, you know, Afghan equipment their, is not... Their hands. A shovel and hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're literally building a road, an asphalt road through dirt by hand. And yeah, and literally we had to stand sentry. Obviously, obviously, like, eventually they had to switch over and they gave them machines because it did eventually get done. It did eventually. I think they contracted out to a like an actual company that came down from Kabul, and they like uh, they made happen. Gotcha. Instead so, of like so the local Afghans workers, actually built hyena. I just always assumed that we built it, or that y'all built it. No, hmm. no. that's interesting. We built portions of it. There were there were portions that like you needed the expertise and the vehicles to do it, mm-hmm. and we did. But most of the time, yeah, we just let the Afghans do it and hoped that that would work. And we so yeah, in the morning they would just have to show up and like do. We'd have searched them all. They'd all have to have their work permits. And so they... what what I'm really hearing here is that the movie uh, Hyena Road is not factual. A little inaccurate. A little bit inaccurate. <laughs> A little inaccurate. And that the Canadians basically did nothing because they didn't even build Route Hyena. I'm just kidding. No, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, we literally sat there and watched other people build it. We, we paid for it to be built. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Over time. How, how American yeah. of you. Yeah, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we're, we're just learning from our southern neighbors. Like, that's the way it that's is, right? right? That's the well, we are, we are sitting here on a momentous occasion for the Panjway podcast. Good we have, been, we have been very, very, very excited and looking forward to this moment where we finally get a Canadian veteran. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. I just want to apologize first off, right off the bat. Just, I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> to everybody. Uh, and to all the other Canadians that eventually you're going to have on the show, I apologize that I'm I'm the first. You one. are the face of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm I'm super happy to be here, man. This is awesome. Love that. We appreciate, it, man. Like we've been we've been stoked to get some Canadians on here. We'll have some more come on because Panjway for the Canadians is like Corn Gall or Solder City for the Americans. It Vietnam, is in, really, yeah. It is ingrained into Canadian military history. Hundred percent, yeah. And, and we it, have, we recognize like day one of the Panjway podcast that a significant portion of our mm-hmm. viewers and listeners were from the Great White North, or for me, the Great White East, Great White, um, <laughs> <laughs> great white Southeast. Just the, yeah. the guys over here, yeah, the guys over yeah. there. Uh, but you know, a constant theme on the podcast is that everything that Americans did in Panjway was preceded and built upon. By the Canadians, the Canadians yeah. starting with Op Medusa, continuing on with you know combat operations in area, and all the way up to the point where we handed off in 2011. You know, it Kandahar was a Canadian fight, Panjway was a Canadian fight, and they have a lot of ownership, and there's a lot of stories, and there's a lot of uh history there. Yeah, so chance it, for, it forged the nation, yeah, absolutely, really yeah. So Chance, we appreciate you being the first one to join us. It helps that you have your own podcast and you have your own gear, so we didn't yeah. have to ship a Good podcast to box across borders, which was a big help for us. So thank you for uh, for joining us. It absolutely my pleasure, man. I'm happy to be here. And honestly, the as I said, it 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 
it forged a generation of warriors. It like we mm. we all got in knowing exactly where we were going and exactly what we were getting into. <clears throat> and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but like I my whole training portion uh getting in mm. was during Aunt Medusa. My entire basic uh lead up to getting into the regiment, what Aunt Medusa was being fought as I was being trained. So my instructors were doing that constantly, like, this is where you're going. Mm-hmm. These are the casualties that are happening. Understand what's what you're getting into. So we, it was like. That's a, I mean, that's really, that is unfound in the U.S. military, especially at that time. Like when you, you went in 06 and I went in, yeah. in 08, but even about, even in 2012, you didn't know where you were going. You didn't know, like if you were combat arms or if you were infantry, you could be, sitting on a fob pulling guard in Baghdad, or you could be stomping around in Panjway. You know, you well, just, you uh, had no idea what to Korngal expect. And a striker yeah. in Mazari Sharif and a, yeah. <laughs> on a boat. Like it, there's yeah, so it was much, so, like, so much no stuff. Knowing. But to go in knowing like where, where you were going to go and what kind of thing to expect had to be pretty valuable. But like I said, we'll get to it. But one of the yeah. ways we, the way we start this thing off is we let you tell us about, um, your own military service. Um, obviously, yours is a little different since you did your time in the Canadian Army. Yep. But first thing I want you to talk about is your podcast. So tell, tell us about the podcast and then tell us about uh, why the Army, why your MO or whatever the Canadian version of your job yeah, is. MOS, yeah. Yeah, and how you came to Panjway. Raj, so, so the podcast, it is called Tools for the Toolbox. It is uh, basically me. I mean, obviously, I try to hide my face a little bit with the hat and the beard and everything, but no, it's oh, me too. <laughs> the whole concept is just talking about the tools that we all use, the, the vets and serving and uh, first responders and like everybody, how we deal with the issues that we deal with. So I talk about specific things like pain or um, dealing with your temper or dealing of talking about your own history as you and I, got, uh, we all discussed the other day or uh, earlier. And it just, I find listening to people who have chewed the same dirt, talk about the issues that you're going through, it makes it that much easier to understand and accept and move forward on. Because if you're sitting around talking with your buddies while drinking beer and somebody comes up with a good idea, you're going to listen to them because it makes sense, right? You trust that person. You understand where he comes from. That makes, yeah, cool. Good to go. So that's really what I do. And it, uh, I learn something every time I do a podcast and I just love doing it. And how many times did we hear going through training? You may never use this, but it'll be another tool for your toolbox. Right. So that's what that is. Um, as for where it started. Oh dear. Um, Cole's notes is I always wanted to be a soldier. Always. I have, I showed you guys a picture of me when I was four, wearing an <laughs> olive drab shirt with the army written across the chest. Uh, I have pictures of myself standing sentry on my, uh, on my tree house when I was like six, just with a little pop gun to stand in century for no reason. Nice. I didn't realize how, how much it sucked until I had to do it for real later. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, at, you know, at six, I loved it. And then I was a big fan of history as well. Like I, I learned early that my granddad was an engineer in world war two. Uh, my, my dad is like, and the whole family on that side are all ranchers and they've had, uh, they've run cattle for many, many years. So, growing up kind of country slash city kind of back and forth uh, I realized how important work was right you have to work and uh, eventually I got 
older um, and September 11th happened. And I remember coming downstairs. So I was, I was 18 at that point in time. And I remember coming downstairs from bed after sleeping in and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning or something like that, Alberta time. And I walked downstairs and my mom was watching the news and I was like, why is my mom watching the news? She never watches the news. <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense. And then I watched, and they were showing the replays of the t- uh, the planes hitting the tower, and I was just like, wow, hmm. that is a fucked up show. Why is my mom watching this show? <laughs> this doesn't make it. This can't be real. Hmm. And then you start to realize that the the news bulletins are this is actually happening. And then uh, the war began at that point. Um. And I didn't sign up initially at that point in time. I was just like, well, wow, that's that's fucked up. And Canada joined the uh, the coalition of the willing, I think it was called. And well, that was the Iraq one. Was that was the Iraq it? one? Okay, I don't know. But the Whatever the coalition, goes. right? The yeah, NATO-led yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking the NATO, yeah. force and we invaded Afghanistan. And I was like, that's, f- wow, crazy. And I was a bit of a pothead at that time. So I, I didn't have a whole lot of forethought as to what I was going to do with my life other than where I was going to get some more pot. And um, eventually what happened was I was talking to my brother and he told me uh, just to fucking do it. That I want to be in the military since I was young. Why, why the fuck am I not yet? Hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> I should just go do that right now. So in 2003, I uh, signed up for the first time had a bit of an issue getting in initially just based on my uh, recreational activities at that point in time. <laughs> and I had to spend uh, an extra 18 months uh, waiting. So by the time I actually got in, it was uh, December of 2005. And I started my basic training in January of 06 and went from there. So um, for all of those that don't know, I'll go into a little bit of the Canadian side versus the American side. Basic for us is all arms. So every either Army, Navy, or Air Force, everyone does the same basic. And we all go to the same place, usually, in uh, saint jean richelieu in Quebec. It's just outside of uh, Montreal. I totally butchered that, by the way. So don't Yeah, but we've already, my... as we discussed in the pre-interview, French Canadians aren't real Canadians. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so so I went there for 13 weeks uh, with everyone else, and then I went to my soldier qualification, which is Army-specific stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you do your basic as the Canadian forces. Everyone does basic, and then you go into your element training. So Navy guys do Navy school, Air Force guys go Air Force school, and Army guys go to soldier qualification, or what it's now called, BMQ land. And uh, you Somebody got weeks. promoted for that one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so you do six weeks there, and you do army stuff, machine guns, um, grenades, section attacks, how to do a platoon attack, recce's, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go to your trades training, which for us is four months as a combat engineer. And that was, uh, that sucked. <laughs> like as, <laughs> as any core training does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I just mentioned, this is no six. Op Medusa is on. People are fighting and dying. The battle for the white school is happening called Objective Rhino. A lot of people know of it. And, you know, I'm sure you, got, you guys have read the book, I think, on Lines the initial invasion as well as uh, Lines yeah. of Canaria. And, and uh, the Operation Medusa like, book, right? I, Curtis has read that one, I think. I think yes, so. Yes, yeah. I have. Uh, the it, one by General Fraser. Yeah. Okay. So that's going on while I'm getting trained. 
So all of my instructors throughout the whole thing are like, just so you guys know, we lost three more guys last night. Hmm. Like, this is where you're going. This is where you're headed. Just so you know, for the combat arms guys. And we're all just like, Roger that. And like it, it put a sense of focus into what it was we were going to do. Hmm. Uh, I finished that training in 2000, in the end of 2006 in October, got to my regiment within, you know, a few days of that. And then, started my work up for Afghanistan in 2007 in January, February. So, and then that was a year worth of training and right. um, getting ready to deploy there. And we were trying to learn lessons from 06. And this is what we were going to do. We're going to be kinetic operations continually. We're going to be patrolling with the infantry. We need to be ready for it, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So at that and time, then, was it, was it, pretty assumed or known that if you were in the Canadian army, you were going to deploy to Panjway. Like everybody went. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, like it would take, it would take something extraneous for you not to go. Right. Mm. And that was just like you, you're going period. In combat arms. In combat arms. Yeah. Yeah. If you were, you know, and that, and that varied as well, right? Like you could be in the S shop, right. And you'd Mm -hmm. be sitting in CAF. Go right. get go and get Timmy's every day, right? Well, you're you're um, deploying regardless. There's deploying no regardless. Yeah. there's no you're chance that he's going yeah. to a non-deploying unit. No, yeah. no, there's no such thing as a non-deploying unit in Canada. <laughs> there was just like <laughs> you are, you, and that's the thing. We have a thing called the universality universality of service, hmm. which means that if you are in uniform, you are deployable. Period. Hmm. If you are undeployable, you are out of the army or out of the military. Like out you go. Good. Uh, that's changed over years. Well, uh, it's good and bad. Here's the thing. Like you can get guys who are like would come back from overseas and have lost an arm or have lost a leg or something like that. Mm. And they're unemployable now yeah. out, right? Boot. Rather than keeping them home or keeping them in a unit as admin or some sort of operational, you know, something where you're not actually deploying, mm. but you're still working. But you guys have a pretty decent retirement, you know, medical retirement plan, don't you? No, this no. was the other thing in 06, when I was doing my training, the government rewrote the rules on the pension act. So after world war one, I think, I believe, yeah, I believe after world war one, the government came into and created something called the pension act, which gave full pensions to war veterans. And slowly over the years, as we had less and less veterans, that became less and less robust in terms mm-hmm. of coverage hmm. and certain programs were a- added and others were taken away. But in 06, they just like removed it and they said, nobody gets pensions anymore. You're all going to get a payout if you're injured. And they, that was it. Wow. Just in time for Operation Medusa. Wow. Yeah. That's so new. It was, oh man, they knew. <laughs> yeah. this this fuckers. It was during Op Medusa. Oh, it wasn't even like before or man. after it was while it was happening. That's and, uh, yeah, it went it went downhill pretty fast, but we've kind of gotten back to where we, we don't have what we used to, but mm-hmm. we have more in certain areas than we did beforehand. So it's it, it's kind of wonky right now. But right now we have in the last fifteen years, we have two or three different generations of veterans covered by three different generations of vet, uh, pension coverages. Hmm. And the programs, some of them work with others and some don't. And it's a bitch trying to fucking yeah. figure your way through it. Yeah. So there's lots of problems with that. But um, 
Oh, good. I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad it's as convoluted as it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it sounds pretty yeah. similar. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, it's all <laughs> fucked up. The, you yeah. know, the the biggest issue. Nobody's is, got it right. Yeah, no. not, that, not that the American VA says. The guy who yeah. was in the Air Force for three years has 60%, but the dude who went to Panjway and, you know, got his noodle rocked, he has 40. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And a lot of it is that same thing. Like, I know guys that are uh, a good friend of mine had both of his legs blown off um, above the knee. <clears throat> he's like technically 320% disabled. Mm-hmm. Like we, if you add all the different things up. So he's got full coverage and he's good to go. And that's, uh, he's taken care as, of. As he should be. Yeah, as absolutely. he should be, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and then you have other guys who are really beat up, but like not physically beat up, right? Like right. they're, they got bad shoulders, they got bad knees, they got bad backs, they got bad hearing, they got bad, like everything's bad, but it's not, missing anything and they come out and they're like yeah you're 48 percent disabled and you're like yeah what does yeah. that mean like yeah <laughs> on a bad day i can't move how does that rectify like it's just yeah but on 40 on the other 52 days you can move yeah yeah so <laughs> it, it is it's really it's really weird and yeah. our system is built like an insurance company so really if you don't have the paperwork a hundred percent you ain't getting nothing and it's, it's just yeah, it's sad but besides that point, let's go back to getting back sure. to where I was going. So, <laughs> hey, you came to Pandroy. Uh Yeah, in 2007, we did our workup. It's a year long. And then I got some leave, and we left for Afghanistan in... I left for Afghanistan mid-February of 2008. 2008. Yeah. Gotcha. And, now, uh, when we were talking in the pre-interview, there we talked a little bit about you know culture and stuff. And you, you mentioned that you had felt like uh, because your father or grandfather had served... You know, it's very common in the U.S. to have this, like, culture of service. You know, families and generations that have served in the U.S. military, and there's this big national pride of in Americans. Is is it is it very similar in Canada? Is there is there this duty to serve very yeah, common? It is. And, like, you find it, a lot of the people that are in usually got in because they saw, uh, they, they looked at it as their either their duty or their responsibility or... Um, that's just the way it was. And for sure. many, many years, we've always had a very small military. So um, <clears throat> there weren't many people like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we actually started fighting, a lot of people stood up and they said, all right, if like my country needs me, I'm here. Yeah. Whereas prior to that, they were like, I don't really want to go to Bosnia and drive around looking for mines, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Whereas Afghanistan started and they were like, okay, yep, sign me up, I'm in. And so we had a big surge at that point. Unfortunately, <clears throat> there's a political side to that where you have um, a lot of administrators running the military rather than warriors. Yeah, and same here. Yeah, yeah, it led to a lot of issues in, in the initial stages of Afghanistan just because people are all like, well, why don't you ever pay for work on order? And he's like, I just came back from a fucking operation. What do you want from me, right? Like that kind of stuff. And Yeah. Um, is it, does that permeate in like your political culture as well? Because I mean, up until recently, it was unusual for anybody in a political position in the United States not to have military service. So, yeah, no, it it, it it's unusual that for someone to have military experience in our political system. Really? Yeah. So yeah. it's when you see someone that's actually a veteran that's in politics, there's usually there's usually a bit of like, huh? Like <laughs> what? What is he getting out of being there? Right. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> Versus actually wanting to serve and be leaders. We're seeing a bit more now. 
Yeah, because I mean, just a generational thing. We got, yeah. we got a generation yeah. of veterans. It's yeah, and a more... lot of us we look at it right. Like if you aren't part of the problem, or you can't, if you're not part of the system, Solution. you can't fix the problem. Yeah, right? so that's uh, unfortunately where we are. So I arrived in Afghanistan in 2008, and that started eight months of a deployment. That uh, it was interesting Long times to yeah. say the least. <laughs> yeah, and as an engineer, we we did. I, I did operations all over Afghanistan. I did, uh, and I did all sorts of different jobs doing, like, you name it. I've built fobs. I've um, done convoys. I've done foot patrols. I've done um, rebuilding. I've done sentries. I've done, like, I... Well, you bring up a good point. I mean, most people are familiar with what a combat engineer does, but you're actually our first combat engineer, whether American or Canadian, to come onto the show. So if you wanted to give us kind of a brief overview of what what you're supposed to do and what kind of you ended up doing in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, so combat engineers are basically, at least in the Canadian military, um, we do everything. We're the jacks of all trades. We primary though, we have three things, mobility, counter mobility, and survivability. Those are our three main jobs. So we have to be able to live. We have to, not only for us, but for everybody around us, we have to be able to live, move and fight on the battlefield. Right. So that means we can uh, clear a minefield to allow us movement. We can set a minefield to deny movement. We can build bridges. We can destroy bridges. We can uh, handle IEDs. We can um, patrol with the infantry. We have, we, exactly, just like <laughs> right. mines. Um, we can build structures. We can um, take them down. Take them down. We can right. move structures. We like there's uh, in the Canadian military. There's not a job in the army that we can't do except for shoot mortars. I think that's about it. Because mortars are specific to infantry. Okay. But other than that, Fair like we, yeah. we basically do everything. So um, we have to have skill in pretty much everything, but we, we're not, you, we have our own specialties. So sure. within the engineers, we have EOD. Within the engineers, we have our combat divers. We also have heavy equipment guys. We have um, boat ops people. We have like, it just, we start to, differentiate within the unit as to what debt you're part of basically through the whole thing well that's one key difference that we noted when we did the pre-interview is that for us eod is a separate completely separate mos mm. um and for you guys it's still a they still have separate capabilities like it's an added capability but eod starts as engineers right yeah so yeah. you have yeah. to be you have to be a combat engineer before you can become uh eod and then you can even be EOD qualified as an engineer, not doing EOD tasks. Yes, absolutely. There, there's a, there's two other trades that you can get your EOD uh, qualification within the Canadian military, but only very specific. So you can be fleet diving unit for the Navy, or you can be an AWS tech uh, for the Air Force, which basically means you can demolish stuff that uh, the Air Force drops and you fix their guns and stuff. So you have to have the qualification to do that. Um, but other than that, so we actually lost a couple of Navy guys overseas that were with the EOD teams because they had the qualification to go on right. the EOD team. Which I mean which is which is common here yeah. too. I mean we we extensively used Navy EOD, Air Force EOD and they didn't they didn't train to be detecting uh you know pressure plate IEDs in Panjway. They they were trained to look for, you know, bombs at checkpoints or 
you know, render safe crashed aircraft or crashed munitions or Navy EOD were there to render sea mines in there yeah. and stuff like that. So it's really cool when you see all these services kind of like abandon their core values or, or their core jobs to come and help the, you know, the yeah. grunts walk to around Panjway. It was really nice. Hump around giant backpacks and <laughs> look for bonds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, at the, at the real core, combat engineers were designed for mobility, right? We are made so that we can allow the infantry movement right. across the board. So when you need something, that's what we go do. So most of the time when we were dismounted, the engineers would be clearing. That would be, we'd be in front with a metal detector clearing the road. And that would be our job, period. And we had dudes behind us to watch our back and that's it. And that's something that's kind of unique to you guys because for us, mm-hmm. combat engineers got attached and they we didn't have that many for one thing but they got attached to us and then detached but you guys actually you you went out on patrol every time with your infantry counterparts right yeah. and they yeah. they had to have you yes they, yeah, yeah they, they, they could they, they couldn't move without you yeah there was no movement in the ao without engineer support period and we were a battle group um asset so we could get picked up and pulled and moved and we're going to send you with that company and now you're going to go with that company and then you're going to switch out here. And we would be broken down um, in equivalency. So you'd have like a squadron of engineers would get deployed with um, with a battalion. So you sure. have two VP or two PPCLI would, we got attached to them as a squadron. And then the troops themselves, which is basically a platoon, gets pushed to uh, the company. And then right. the company breaks that down. The So our sections get pushed out to platoons, and then you'd have like two engineers pushed to an infantry section. Now, when and, you were patrolling with those infantry, were you always with the same infantry? Or well, the, did you rotate around different platoons, different squads? Kind of we stuff like we that? would rotate around pretty easily. Once we got embedded in somebody, we'd stay there for a while or that particular operation, and then we'd get pulled. And then we'd, so we'd always return to our home unit when we exfilled. Okay. Or when we got back to camp, we would return to our section. And then, okay, tomorrow orders, you're going to be with, um, you know, this particular section okay. go talk to that sergeant. Like, so I'm sure that led to you guys when, when you were in Panjway, that led to you bouncing all over Panjway, right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So you, you never, you didn't spend, you know, all that time at Mazamgar or at Sparrowangar. You got to see a good chunk of the horn out there. Pretty much. Yeah. The, uh, I was on QRF for, I was part of the, the battle group QRF for five months out of the eight that I was there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my job was driving from AO to AO to AO to AO whenever shit happened. Mm-hmm. And so we would just, off we go. Okay, we're off to another one. Oh, another ID strike. Okay. And there were days where like, uh, I got kicked out of my rack at like one o'clock in the morning and mm-hmm. be like, we got a call, let's go. And you'd have to clear in the dark with a red light. Fun. Which, you know, you're going to see so many markers at night with a red light on your head. Yeah, you're, you're very reliant on the metal detector. Yeah, that. and so we would clear as we went, and then we'd get to that particular site, and we'd start clearing that. We'd render it basically safe. We'd start to remediate, and while we were remediating, we'd get a call, be like, oh, we got another ID, hit, head off to the next one. And he'd be like, yeah. okay. And there were days where I went from 1 o'clock that one morning to the next evening so almost 48 hours before we actually got back yeah just constant like we got another hit we gotta go over here these guys are on contact we gotta go see these guys we gotta go over here and it was just uh yeah on the road now how, so, how extensive was your training with the counter id equipment like the metal detectors or the gprs and stuff like that i mean very. were you 
vary. Could yeah, you so, could you explain a little bit about yeah, what the tramp is like? We use the uh, F1A1 Mine Lab, which is an old, it's a straight up metal detector. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, it's extremely sensitive, and sure. you have to really know how to use it. So, out of the four months of engineer specific training that I got just to be qualified as an engineer, uh, we have I think I think it's six weeks in the mine lab, which is just nice. mines. And so you're using metal detectors pretty much every day. You have to be able to figure out how to uh, balance them on the ground and then how to balance them in metal laden ground, how to balance them on rock versus concrete versus like blah, 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 blah. And we would, we'd be clearing stuff and we'd be doing um, old school mine clearance with a prodder on the ground, like working your way up. And they say a really good engineer can do a meter a minute of actual prodding and there's a there's a sequence to it there's a way you do it the, the we call it the liberace so you have to feel the ground itself and then you have to check for trip wires and then you start with your prodder and you work your way across and then you work a lot and you just <laughs> inch your way up and mm. you should be able to clear a meter a minute Jesus which is insane yeah. <laughs> i don't think like... i could clear a meter a minute with a mine hound <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah. that's how we do it on the ground and then with the metal detector you should be walking um, basically a drill speed. So you should be able to walk at, I think it's 120 beats a minute and sweep and, and watch like, and, and recognize what's going around you. We never walked that fast though. Like we yeah. never walked that fast. It, the threat was so high that it was, you were meticulous. Yeah. Meticulous. Exactly. Well, I know for us, the, just the mere fact of holding the mind detector and sweeping it constantly was exhausting. We had to switch guys out back and forth. I mean, it was not only was it mentally taxing to have to look for signs and signatures and flags and disturbed earth and all the other things that came along with the IED threat, but, you know, six to eight pounds on an outstretched arm, it just smokes you. So did you guys have, did you guys trade off back and forth, you and, a, and, a, and another IED? Or <laughs> not really, just, no. No, no just... if you were patrolling, you were basically in front until you stopped. And then, uh, <laughs> that was just the way it was. Um, yeah, a lot of it was just straight, uh, straight patrolling. You would be on, um, on clearance the whole way until either you said, "Hey, I need to, I need, a, I need a break." Yep. Or, but that rarely happened because it was uh, kind of a professional thing. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't want the infantry to go. I don't really want that guy. He takes too many breaks, right? You, you, right. Uh, so we have to maintain a level of. Um, ego I guess to kind of push through that and then yeah you just keep going and you keep going and keep going and keep going and then be like okay we're gonna halt here for the night and so you'd be like oh sweet you put your metal detector away and can you, can you go clear this compound that we want to sleep yep. in? Yeah, that happened to me a few times where, you know, the <laughs> yeah. infantry captain or whoever was in charge would be like, can you go clear that building? And you're like, sure. Like, as And as a private, as a sapper, right? Like I, yeah, sure. No problem. Like in my head, I'm thinking, I have no idea what the fuck I'm going to do here. But when the infantry guy says, can you clear that building? You're like, yes, sir. No problem. <laughs> yeah. And you do it, and you do it. And me and my fire team partner, we went up and we cleared the building. We used the building as a hide for the night, and mm-hmm. everything was good. But uh, yeah, at the time, I, as a brand new private, I think I was <laughs> just like, I'll do the best I can. And, <laughs> but when you got to country and they put a mine mine detector in your hand, you're like, okay, I know, yeah, I know, yeah, what, I know what to do with your, this. You're from your yeah. territory. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 I was like, I've never seen this before in my life. Like, well, you yeah, it, use when it you, as a when I started listening to you guys and listening to you guys talk about using the mine hat, I was like. 
why would they put it in the hands of the infantry? Like, <laughs> why? That's a great question. <laughs> we, we kind of halfway joked in the, uh, the pre-interview about how, for us, it was just like, when you first get it, and you're sleeping along, and it goes, I'm like, oh, shit, is this a thing? And you'd take your time, and eventually it's just like, you just go through. Because there's so much metal, and we, we didn't know what to differentiate between the tones, stuff like that. Yeah. So and what made a weird noise is when you stop and start looking yeah, around. Wait so a second. Let me, let, me, let me look for that one here. And, goes, <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, what's this? And you start looking around like, I don't know. And depending on how tired you are, you just kind of stomp your feet around a little bit. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we we called that okay. the Russian Minesweeper. That's like you just tap your legs in front of you and you hold your ears and you're like, what is it? Is yeah. It? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's the one is when you get to it, you're like, I think there's an IED there, but I'm not 100% no. sure. And if anyone's going to step on it, it's going to be me. Yeah. So he's like, let's hope it's 10 pounds or less and I just wake up and calf. Yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just take the step. <laughs> we had a uh, we had a continual saying within the engineers and it was, if there's doubt, there is no doubt. And that was like, yeah. if you if you even think you're in a minefield, you're, you're in a minefield. You're in like a minefield. Yeah. So when it came to IEDs, it was the same thing. It was like if you have even the slightest hesitation that there's an IED there, there is. Act yeah. like it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we we're such a small unit, right? We yeah. have basically a company that is on tour together, mm-hmm. and that that's it. Yeah. There's you know very little. Are you gonna get replacements in? So even if you take losses, that like sucks to be you right mm. uh so we had a few people where we had to send home and we'd get replacements but if we had losses they were just gone yeah. yeah and that was that was it so it was really personal when we mm-hmm. were clearing and there was always this every engineer i know that i've talked to about clearing it was i would rather me clear so exhausted i could barely see and step on something than any one of the guys behind me Period. Yeah. And that was our experience with uh, company engineers too, man. And I it's, it's just, it, that's our job. It's, it's kind of a pretty tight bond. Like of all the, the combat arms, the combat engineers and infantry, at least in the right scenario, are going to yeah. be pretty tight. Versus infantry usually has kind of an exclusionary mentality about other MOSs. But yeah, well, you I mean, tankers com- are fucking retarded. So <laughs> 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 no, no, it, you, it, you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Still the, the, first, done. the Canadians are saying the tankers suck. No, it, uh, it, no, it, but... it, it's true though. We, we work with the infantry. We're one of the few yeah. that work directly with, with the infantry. With. The foo facts are kind of the same way. They are, we are right there with you. The medics, like mm-hmm. man, Medics they are sitting too, there yeah. carrying sixty odd pounds in a friggin' backpack of just medicine, not including their food and all that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, and they're humping it right there beside you. Get mm-hmm. like, but as we said earlier, you know, uh, we all have a job, and mm-hmm. the fact that we're all compartmentalized like that enable us to do that job. Period. Yeah. Right? The infantry close with and destroy the enemy. Rock on. Close with and destroy that enemy. But in order to get you there. Let me build you a bridge so you're not running through a fucking river and getting shot, right? Or let me mm-hmm. put a boat down so you're good to go and we'll get you across. Or let me clear the minefield so you can get through. Like, I'm 100% down making sure you guys get to the job because that's your job. Yeah. And I'd, well, I I'd like to think that if we had the the engineers available, that they we would have used the same yeah. thing to have engineers up if front for like every dismount of patrol. Permanently. Yeah. That would have been awesome. You know, that would have been yeah. such I mean, a great asset, actually. Well, and it would have reduced our casualties. It would have, yeah. Uh, but it I reduced think ours. at like, the end of the day, it, 
they did. Well, it's they, like we didn't have them. Yeah, yeah, so, and that's the thing, right? Like if you if there aren't if we aren't around, you, you got to do your best. Yeah. Makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, I know, and you you've heard us say it on the podcast before, but the the mission where we lost our two engineers, you know, if that had been introduced, Claren, no telling how many casualties we would have taken on that mission. There's no telling. Yeah, you know, we've had well, probably. Every day, He's every day we would have hit an IED for sure. Yeah. But yeah. and fortunately, because of their expertise, I mean, not fortunately, but you know, it's just because of their expertise, it saved us from hitting multiple IEDs yeah. instead of just the yeah. one. And that that's a valuable, it's a valuable thing to bring to uh, to a group of dudes who, like you said, work so closely together. I mean, it's yeah. like it's you know, I hate to I hate to make it a, a no, you know, it, it, I hate to talk about a movie, but in Saving Private Ryan. When they're storing the beaches of Normandy and the dudes show up with the bandoliers that like blow the hole in the wire, those are combat engineers, you Damn know? Right. So yep. that, that, that connection is ingrained in that experience and that they're, they're so tightly wound together. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember doing my Bangalore training and I was like, I remember seeing that movie after the, I, I had done Bangalore training and I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> so that. real. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Bangalores are awesome actually. And we have to make improvised Bangalores at one point. <clears throat> which are 26 blocks of C4 taped between two pieces of angle iron. Whoa. <laughs> That's an equivalent charge to an actual constructed Bangalore. Really? Yeah. You take 13 blocks of C4 and you stuff it into like a six foot picket, right? And you just stuff it all the way across and you do the same thing on the other side, tape them together, improvised Bangalore. Wow. That and is... In that case, same problem. That's a is lot not inaccurate. <laughs> no, it is a lot. That's a huge explosion. That's so thing, much yeah. C four. It's it's uh, explosives will always take the the easiest path. Okay, mm -hmm. so yes. if you take a round object, you throw it on top of a solid object, and that thing is full of explosives, it will go upwards. Yes, <clears throat> that's yeah. why when we clear, we go on the ground and we come up at a uh, to a mine or a UXO or something on an angle. So that if it does go off, the blast is going to hit either the helmet, like it's it's going to be localized because the blast goes up, mm -hmm. unless it's underneath you and then it's going to go through you. But <clears throat> the whole concept is is that you can get close to it and the charge can still go off, and you're going to be mostly okay, mm -hmm. other than the large explosion beside your face. But uh, like frag is the number one issue yeah. when it comes to explosives yeah so if you have fragmentation of any kind or if you like the beaches are perfect because when you throw a bangalore over the beach will actually absorb the downward blast so everything mm. going up is going to go up yeah, yeah just because of the looseness of the sand Makes so sense. that yeah, yeah for saving private ryan those are accurate explosions it's just the ground that they're on and oh. what they're actually using and so on and so forth and the neat thing they all factoid. attach to each other and you can like they're, they're like Lego at the base. So you like strike them together, you go click, and then you slide them and you grab another one and you click it in, click. <laughs> and so you can make them as long as you want and then you just throw your mm -hmm. debt in the end and boom. Yeah. I love a little explosives. bit of detour, but a useful yeah. one. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Anytime you get me talking about explosives, I'm just going to be like, hey. Yeah. No, that, that's good though, man. So yeah. um, one of the things that like, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, we talked about in your podcast, like no two deployments are the same. Like they all change, like the Taliban or the the enemy changes their tactics. They change how they utilize the materials of their possession. Each unit has different SOPs. Each army obviously yeah. has different ways of dealing with the problems. So, you know, what was when you were in Panjway? Like, what was the fight like? 
what kind of things were you guys seeing from the enemy? Because like you had you had kind of a different IED threat at the beginning than we did, right? Yeah, yeah. So we, <clears throat> our whole workup was built off of Op Medusa. So 06 was like the uh, <clears throat> the line in the sand where we had our lessons learned from. So while I was doing all my training in 07 and the tour in 07 was happening, we didn't have the lesson learned loop to get back yeah. into the military fast enough, right? So the lessons we were we were being trained on were from the year previous. Mm-hmm. So we were expecting to get into gunfights. Like that was our, we're going to be taking objectives and we're going to be shooting people and we're doing lots of CQB and we're doing lots of um, breaching and we're doing lots of like very kinetic training. Mm-hmm. And then we got to Afghanistan and they're like, okay, so most of the areas are pretty much taken. <laughs> like we have our main objectives that we wanted to hold and we have mobility, but the biggest issue is IEDs now. And we're like, yeah. oh, okay. So let's start looking at IEDs. And then we started dealing with, um, you know, the countermeasures that are involved in dealing with IEDs. So we have to move slower. We have to have, and like I said earlier, we have, we have to have engineers with us at a bare minimum in any movement whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, in every patrol, we were out and we were clearing actively regularly. There were still patrols where we would start off walking on the paths with no, with like an infantryer in the front and the engineer being number two. Hmm. And if the infantryer or the engineer said, yeah, yeah, I think we should break out our metal detectors then we would. Otherwise, we just keep patrolling. But for the most part, it was a lot of um, general movement patrols and a lot of uh, <clears throat> what I what we like to call pick-a-fight patrols. So mm-hmm. we would walk... Yeah, well, we would walk <laughs> into an area at like 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like everyone else is asleep, right? And we'd sit down and we'd hide, hide, but we would just kind of sit down for the night. And then we would set up our positions at dawn and then the, the Taliban, the, the insurgents would wake up to us being on top of them. And mm-hmm. so they would start either, they would engage us directly and then we would engage them with massive amounts of fire. And if we ever got into, you know, uh, too much, we, the Kiowas would bail us out. And those Kiowas were friggin' awesome. I can't say enough about them. They fucking saved our ass. I don't know how many times. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't even count how many times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that the, the day-to-day biggest issue was IEDs but they were, they were mostly vehicle IEDs. So we had a lot of freedom of movement on foot. And then by the time I left, as we were uh, leaving in, uh, later that year, we started seeing a lot of smaller um, foot-sized IEDs, stuff that was trying to take out a dude or two from a section rather than uh, the big ones that the vehicles would hit. Right, which obviously is the IED threat that we inherited because yeah. that's almost exclusively what we faced. We had three vehicles hit an ID in nine months. Wow. And only only two of them really count. And only two of them really count. And yeah, nobody, was, like, like, nobody, we, yeah, nobody got <laughs> wounded. You know, yeah. nobody got messed up. Like they were smaller. Like the biggest one was probably a hundred pounds. Yeah. Maybe we were seeing yeah. We were seeing like they were trying to take out our tanks. That was yeah. the big one. So we would see <clears throat> massive, massive IEDs. Yeah. Um we had unfortunately my <clears throat> my recce team, uh, Echo Two One Bravo, they got they hit something huge. It actually blew the turret out of the lav. It's crazy. The whole turret, and just that's how large it was. And yeah, it, like it, it, 
that's the kind of shit we were facing on the roads. So when we were clearing those roads, that was our biggest threat. And mm-hmm. then when we were on foot patrol, for me, I was just like, oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is so much less stress because I found the markers so much easier to see walking, right? Like mm, I, I, I'm sure. on the ground. I'm not in an air century hatch looking at the ground 20 meters as we're driving 60 kilometers an hour. Like mm. I, I can't see that shit. And you know, our drivers are hatches down, so they're looking through periscopes. They're not going to see shit, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so a lot of our driven IEDs were found either based off of improper techniques by the insurgents. So they would leave something really visible like those ant hills to cover command wires mm-hmm. where they would just st- stuff uh, dust on them. Mm-hmm. Those would give it away real fast. Uh, or if we were doing vulnerable point searches ahead of time, so we'd have the V set up and we'd like walk in the road ahead of it. So right. again, we'd have to be on foot to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the, the vehicle ones were, were big up until about halfway through the tour and they realized we were on foot a lot and then they started putting them smaller ones and then the tour after us the 2009 tour we're starting to see uh oh that yeah so near the end of my tour is when they started targeting the engineers that was where they they were really looking to hit the guys with the metal detectors because we were seeing um we're seeing charges set behind the pressure plate a lot so Hmm. you'd be going with your metal detector and you would see you'd hit something and you would stop and you'd go to explore it or you'd go to pull a prod or something like that to work the ground a little bit, but the charge would have been six to eight feet behind that. So you'd be standing on it, starting your thing, and that would be command detonated. Hmm. Um, or, you know, things like that where you it's obvious they're trying to hit the person that is clearing the road right? rather hmm. than the actual, uh, the rest of the platoon or something the like unit. that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were starting to see directional fragmentation charges come in right near the end of my tour at the beginning of the next tour and they became pretty prolific uh in 2009 they, they did a lot of dfcs which are mm-hmm. um improvised claymores for those that don't know yeah, yeah we, we didn't run into that really they like, tried it once they or twice. tried a couple times but for the most part it was all pressure plates yeah you know five to 20 pounds well, yeah, I, think it, I think it took them a while to find a technique that was efficient yeah. and, and and effective you know, once they ran out of Soviet munitions, those big bombs just weren't, they weren't Weren't feasible. They couldn't make that much HME. You know, how many hours of work does it take to make 500 pounds of HME? And then, and it's going to get found because when we took over, we were using, we were using that, the, the Husky, which has a giant GPR on the front. You can't hide that from that thing. You're going to find a 500 pound IED on a road. Yeah. And the the GPR, like the E-Rock package, that whole set up with the the husky and the buffalo and all them they cleared our roads for us like they would go to town and then we'd vulnerable point search afterwards so what we were looking for on the ground was like hastily in place ied right stuff exactly was like yeah just thrown in really quick after the e-rock package yeah. had gone over and then you can't hastily in place a, a 500 pounds yeah, no, yeah. yeah. there's no way yeah. so the big mean, ones that we found were like they were dug in under the asphalt road that had been there since before we paved it right and they would just leave a, a lead that they could hook up and and yeah, so they exactly. were, were they using like gold 107 rounds and stuff like that? So yep. just like munitions uh, and things like that? Found, More like Iraq, basically. M- well, most of the stuff we found was HME and those big-ass cooking pots, like the the really big mm-hmm. silver ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we found a lot of HME of that. The the ordnance itself, they would try and shoot at us mostly. So in mm-hmm. Massengar, we got rocketed pretty much every night. 
there were it's I think wild. I think it's there bad. was a point where it was like there was three days where we didn't get rocketed and we were all sitting there like what's coming what is it coming <laughs> like <laughs> and it just weirded us out uh where would and, that originate from from just from the green zone yeah just from the green that would come in nor no mostly from the north okay because uh, okay. so the engineers also we lived in uh the the tent system that was up on top of the hill so if you guys remember massengar there was like mm-hmm. you have the main compound down below and then there's the one spot up top we called the catcher's mitt and that's where all the rockets would hit. That's where the engineers lived. So we would sit there, and I have a picture of me and my buddy. Uh, we were playing baseball on Xbox. And we both have our armor and our helmet on because we had just got rocketed twice that night. And we were just like, whatever, we got armor on. I'm just keep playing. <laughs> like, there's, you, get, you just got so uh, used to it that it just... You're like whatever, but yeah, a lot of those like Chinese 106s were pretty were pretty regular. Mm. Um, the 107s would come in pretty regular. Uh, the every so often we'd get mortared, but that was pretty rare because we we had a system uh, when I was there that uh, countered not countered but like it triangulated where the base plate was. So the moment they fired it, we knew exactly where it was, and our artillery would hit it, and it would just be like gone so they figured out real quickly that none of their mortar teams kept coming back and yeah and that system developed out of the iraq war which and they, it's oh, still in use and it's, it's still in it's use. range in has expanded yeah <laughs> which is it's awesome but yeah, like, it's incredible but one, it's also about 50 percent accurate yeah. <laughs> but i mean it's the, also the being rockets used right now in israel that's a different that's a different different system but yeah they would for the rockets for us they would just put like a 107 or something like that and they would place it on a rock and kind of yeah. half-ass aim it and then put it on a time delay and they would just fuck off which makes yeah. it amazing that they were to hit a base at all yeah yeah oh absolutely like, there's, and there's like macgyvers out there with like bubble gum duct tape and like three pieces of rebar <laughs> yeah. being like that should hit massive guard yeah. Yeah, send it. <laughs> yeah i always picture the random dude just sitting there like like move it half an yeah. inch to the left. Like we're good yeah. to go. Right? Like, that's, just Ahmed, do not forget to account for the wind. Yeah, wind not account for the wind. wind. Yeah, no, it, uh, but yeah, yeah, we got we that's got rocked point, to the though. point that at like by the time I got to we went into calf for thing or one thing or two. I think I was there maybe four times that whole tour, and we'd go in there and there would be a rocket attack at some point on calf somewhere, and the alarms would go off and we'd all be sitting there going like. What's going on? What the fuck is happening? And people would be scattering to the bunkers, right? And we'd all just be like, uh, what? <laughs> it just, yeah, it didn't even, we didn't even hear the explosion. And all of a sudden, we're just like, people are running, but sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no. I said, I was just saying that, you know, people think rockets, they think like a truck mounted system, that yeah. like, you know, yeah. or a big old like fuselage kind of thing. But you know, the, the, the Taliban just literally laid them on rocks. You know, like it was a rocket with a fuse and, uh, yeah. and just, yeah, just aimed and run. very generally at yeah. the large, but I mean like Massimgar is built like a catcher's mitt, right? Like it, it has is, that yeah. back face of the mountain that they yeah. just smash. That's why I asked which direction they were face. shooting them from. Cause I was yeah. like, there's no way they can get a hit shooting from the south. Over the mountain. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to go up. You have to go straight vertical to get a hit down. Yeah. But from the north, I can see that because so it's very open to the north. We had a really neat thing happen to us. And I say neat, but it was scary as shit when it happened. So <laughs> we got rocketed like, I don't know. I think it was like four or five times in the span of a day or two. Like mm-hmm. it, was, it was a lot. And it all came from the north and we were all like focused on the north. And then um, 
we are OP3, the one way up on top of the hill, uh, up on top of the mountain where he had to like snake back all the way up, mm-hmm. uh, caught some infiltrators trying to come in from the south up the mountainside. Sneaky. Um, the problem was is that the lav barrel that was up there can't definitely down far enough to, get, to hit it right and we had guys that were hanging out of the op out the front of it shooting down the mountainside to try and get these guys that's awesome and uh and then we started walking around our wire because we're like how did they get inside so we checked mm. our wire it was me and some uh me and another engineer and a couple of infantiers and we walked the line and we found that our claymores had been picked up and turned around Ooh. And so they were facing us. And if anybody had actually clacked those off, they would have taken it in the face. And Mm. uh, so we fixed those and we fixed the holes in our wire. We put some trip wires up and we put some more flares and shit like that and just boosted that defense. But uh, luckily enough, the guy saw it. But it was uh, previously had the the rockets brought all our attention north. Mm. And then they pushed south. And then we had to do an awesome BDA, which was lots of fun where... Fun. An American F-16 was actually in the air while that was happening. And so they heard our radio traffic and they're like, hey, uh, just so you know, Tango 2, we have this ordinance. Like, in case you want to use it, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> and yeah, our guys were like, absolutely. Yeah, fucking blah, blah, blah. So they dropped a bunch of bombs and took out a bunch of dudes in that uh, that area just north, just uh, south of the uh, Massengar. And I got tasked that next morning with a BDA and that was fun. Found out that the bombs had dropped in the excitement of us getting out there to do a BDA. I say excitement of just like, oh God, I have to go do a BDA. We started collecting all these things and you'd be like, okay, well, here's a leg and here's this and here's that. And you're, you're doing the math, right? There were four guys and why do I have... I have Nine two, legs. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have too many legs. Like there are too many arms. What is happening here? And then we realized that there is a... Uh, the cemetery oh. right there on the oh. nor- on the south side of uh yeah so <laughs> the a couple of the bombs had landed in the cemetery and just like spread parts everywhere <laughs> but that and made you popular with so, the locals yeah the lo- locals were not happy about that and yeah. we were uh but i mean i remember the confusion about why do i have so many femurs like this doesn't yeah. make any sense and trying to do the math i'm like there were only four guys, right? <laughs> you should only have eight feet. And yeah, it was uh, it was a really weird couple oh, of that'd days. That'd be bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. very weird couple of days. But That actually brings me a good point. How, what was your relationship like with the Afghan people when you weren't bombing their cemeteries? Uh, normally pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, normally pretty good, yeah. The, uh, the biggest issue we had locals-wise, um, initially at the beginning of the tour, was convincing them that the Canadians were back. And uh, we started talking to, through the interpreters, to some of the A&A guys, and apparently the the French battalion that had re- that we had replaced, that we had ripped in, were going around telling them that they weren't Canadian, they were Quebecois. And we were like, you did what fucking now? <laughs> uh, but apparently uh, it was like... French Canadians. Yeah, a couple, it was just a couple <laughs> of them. It wasn't like, like their, their unit was... They did the job and they 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 were uh, they did good work, but a couple of them were just douchebags and were wandering <laughs> around. And they would they they took the, they took the Canadian flag off their uh, uniform and put the fleur de lis on, and what? they walked around like, like Kim- yeah, I'm serious. And we were just like, <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding me. And it oh, led to a lot man. of lot of animosity, mm. and uh, 
but a lot of the locals. That's how we feel like, about Texans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's how the rest of Canada feels about Albertans. Like, that's the same way. They're just like, oh, God, the Hicks are here. Um, but, yeah, like, we would we would go into a village, and they the elders would come out and be like, oh, I was so glad to see that they're very happy the Canadians are back. Hmm. And we'd be like, interesting. What do you mean back? Like, we yeah, left. Left. and they're like, oh, yeah, well, the last guy said they were Quebecois, and we didn't know what that meant. And, like, <laughs> We were like, oh, okay, cool, man. But the locals were usually pretty good, usually. Um, when I first got there, um, I would rarely see a little girl, rarely. And it would be like as a glimpse as they like darted behind their parents or into a building or something like that. Um, but by the end of the tour, I was seeing little girls walk to school on their own, just with the books, walking in town, just uh, just south of Bassengar, and we would be like, cool like it, it was a it was a visible marker <clears throat> we're making progress and uh i don't want to bum you out but yeah i know yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't happen anymore yeah but in 2012 uh, there were no little girls walking around well here's the thing is that we would also see other stuff like i told you the story uh my my sergeant got hit by something while we were driving down the road and i thought that he had gotten shot like a sniper or something had hit him and i flipped my machine gun around and i went to look and there was this kid standing off the road just like with a brick in his hand. Yeah. And we were, I was just like, holy shit. Like, first off, wow. Like, <laughs> good aim. Wow. Mo- moving target 20 miles yeah. an hour, handheld throw. Exactly. <laughs> and, and nailed him in the head. Like, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I just like went off his helmet. But the, uh, but we did have some direct animosity. And you could tell there were people that, like, they fucking hated you. Hated. Hated. Hate. Yeah, you could see it in their eyes, like just yep. the fact that you were there, and fuck you. And there were there lots of times I sat there behind my machine gun, just like, all right, and that's a, that is a surreal. Just bring experience. it, man! Like I'm ready. But, yeah, yeah. To, to, to look, look somebody in the eye, eyes, yeah, and see hatred, hatred, yeah, yeah. and to know, Straight to hatred. know that if if there wasn't a drone overhead or if they weren't outnumbered 30 to one, yeah. that they or would just kill you. They'd, 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 right they'd yeah. slit your throat in their sleep and in your sleep and they wouldn't even think anything yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen hatred like that. Yeah. With uh, being an engineer was that like we knew we were being targeted. We 100% knew it. And that was one of the, you know, when you first, when you first get there, you kind of expect that, you know, they're trying to kill soldiers, right? Makes sense. Enemy. We're bad guys. We're the enemy. Okay, anybody you know for them is a bad guy. That makes sense. But when you start getting like actively targeted, and they're like, they're not just trying to kill a soldier. They're trying to kill me. Like, <laughs> there's it's it's a whole other level of uh, concentration that you have to put into everything. And it's uh, it was a it's a special yeah. moment when you it know is. you've been singled out. When, it, when it's you, like like Curtis said it before, but. I like, I like to use that as an example. Like they're not shooting at the Americans; they're shooting at Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like we had that moment. Like they're not shooting at us; they're shooting at me. Yeah. It's and, a good realization. Yeah. There was a we got into a, a firefight, a sec, the second firefighter that day, I think it was, and uh, they that started. They were trying to hit me. Like <laughs> there was no doubt about it. I was sitting down, and I went to stand up, and the round went right over my head like always fun and i we realized afterwards that it was he was probably aiming at me and because i stood up he pulled oh, yeah, to hit. shoot so he went high as the and i was just like oh Oof. 
that's that's not one you want to think too much about, man. Yeah, <laughs> that was close. All right, cool. But that you know, there was there was a couple close calls before that, so it wasn't uh, new by any means. But yeah, when you get when you actively get targeted and you're like, oh shit, that's <laughs> it's not just anybody else. That is that is definitely coming my way. Actually, um, on that uh, on that topic, what was the small arms like for you guys there? Uh, mostly, I mean, like specifically or just like in general getting contacted? Just in, just just the engagements. in general. Yeah, yeah. engagements uh, in general. Pretty much any time we were on foot, we would get we would get attacked. Pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, was it close? Rarely distant. would it be big. It would yeah. usually be small, you know, two, three people shooting at us and that would be about yeah. it. Uh, Same for us. Few times we got into like bigger engagements. Uh, it was, It was obvious that like there was a very big difference between how we fought and how they fought. And it was, so they would hit us with a bunch of people, but they would get pretty, uh, they would get done pretty fast. And there was uh, another point where we had a sniper team attached to us and there was this really weird lull in the battle, in the, in the firefight. It was just like, you know, the noise of it and rounds going back and forth. And then I think everyone was like reloading at the same time or something, but there was just this weird, half a second three quarter of a second lull and in that middle of it it was just like and everything went back at it was like oh yeah at least we got one (laughs) yeah (laughs) that guy hit something right we knew it but uh yeah most small arms fire was very minimal it was engaged very quickly with a lot and they would they would either get fucked up right fast or they'd be gone and they would disappear into a hot or this was the other part our our roes limited us to uh, they had to have a weapon in their hand. So a lot of times they would shoot at us, run into a grape hut, drop mm. their guns, and then walk out. And we would not be able to engage them because who who else could it be? It could just be a farmer that was sitting in the grape hut randomly until the mm. shooting stopped and then walked out. Now, if you were being actively engaged from like a tree line and you could see like dust kick up, you were shooting. Oh, yeah. 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 Lance gun and, yeah. yeah. And, we would... Uh, we would Give the it death as, blossom as, we could, as it was. Right? And we would call an artillery if we needed to. And like if we were getting shot at from a grape hut, we would level it. The triple Let's... sevens are fucking awesome and they are <laughs> accurate. And we would just like give her. And if the tanks had shot at it, they would level it as well. So we talked to an Afghan interpreter off the record a while ago. I was like, what do you think about the Canadians? He goes, they really like to blow things up. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> He's like, they would get into a firefight and then they'd sit down, they'd call artillery and they would blow up the building. I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, like we, we recognize very early that direct engagement, World War II style operations where we're like charging across open fields doing section attacks didn't really work. And that was a tough lesson for, I think, every, I think every new unit that showed up, whether it was American, Canadian or whatnot, had to learn that lesson because everyone showed up being like, we're gonna, we're not going to do what the other guys did. We're going to we're going to run these squad attacks. We're going to run these flanking maneuvers and we're going to we're going to take the fight to the enemy and we're going to take back the roads and we're going to dominate this terrain and very quickly they realize with an IED threat like that, you can't. You just can't. You can't maneuver like that. You can't move fast. Even if there weren't IEDs, the terrain doesn't allow you to move fast yes. like that. The terrain um, was such a key factor, man. Like if you if you saw an open field, it wasn't really an open field, right? Like it, you, you realize very quickly that that was actually an embedded grape hut or grape row that you had to like then go down and then up and over. It just looked flat from where you were. Right. And uh, 
or it would be a, or it was a, full of marijuana or, yeah, or something. Exactly. It, yeah. was, it was still an obstacle that had to yeah. be had to be or covered. And oh, the big one was the irrigated fields that were just like a hard flooded. crust on top, but mud, and you just yes. step into it. You're like, oh, oh man, <laughs> you cake, can't go anywhere. Cake batter is how we like yes. to describe. Oh, it. Yeah, that's just, a good description of it. Yeah, yeah. you just it's just, just muck, and you just sink in, into it. Brutal. And then you know, there's other things like the the wells. The mm-hmm. big giant fucking holes in the ground that you can't see from fifteen feet away, and then you're like, "Holy shit!" Okay, they're in the middle of a way. marijuana field. You're not looking for it. You take a step. You're like, "Oh yep. shit!" Yeah, we actually yeah. Uh, we lost a, a really great leader. Um, one of the infantry guys fell on a well, and he Are drowned. you kidding me? No, no. He he was an awesome dude. They were doing a night patrol, and uh, he stepped. I think it was like six, seven inches off of the path. Um, off like the foot path that he was following. And you know, when you're wearing night vision, you have no depth reception, right? It just looks like a shadow. Right. And yeah, he stepped straight down into a well. Yep. And just, just disappeared. Yep. He, well, we found, uh, we sent guys down, uh, the, unfortunately one of my good friends was a diver. Like he was one of the combat divers that was with us. And, uh, they were like, okay, guess what? You got to go do body recovery. So he got sent down. Holy shit. And uh, they they recovered him, and they found him. When they found him, he was not wearing any of his kit. So yeah, he, he was just trying to get out, yeah. trying to find an exit. And he just didn't get uh, didn't get back up in time, unfortunately. So they actually wanted to send they wanted to send dive gear out so that they could send another diver down to recover his weapon. Yeah, that. Yeah. That got kiboshed pretty fast, but it was like... You know, that's... Man, that's military logic. That's military logic right there. Like, let's go ahead and let's let's waste lives and resources to recover a weapon that no one will ever be able to recover. And those things are like the the rivers underwater. Like, you can't just... Yeah, yeah, it just... It's fucked up. But yeah, so there's all the ground the the ground itself is an obstacle and yeah it's dangerous for the for the engineers especially like that's our that's supposed to be our job mobility right how do we how do we do this and it it was a constant fight constant figure like how do we get around here how do we do this how do we go there and the, our usually and they, yeah and they change something then you have to change yeah you exactly. suddenly the roads aren't an option and then they start mining the grape rows or they start putting bombs on top of buildings and you have yep. to change and it's exactly yeah we started using constant back and forth started using the badger and the badger would just put its blade down and plow and it would just smash through stuff and for our listeners the badger is essentially it's a it's a tank but instead of a main gun it has a like a, a front end loader from like a uh, from like a bulldozer yes. on the front of it yeah so it's so got it's a big essentially big a way overpowered it. bulldozer yes yeah. and it's a it is a leopard one chassis so it is like a full-size tank with a full-size tank engine and then it's got a big ass bulldozer and a excavator arm on it so it can actually carry fascines which is another thing that gets us through some of the areas that we had to use um so it would carry fascines sometimes and it would carry uh that it could dump into an irrigation channel and then you could drive tanks over it and uh yeah so we when i got blown up like when my lab got blown up um we had a a tank with a mine roller in front going ahead of us another tank with a plow then the badger and then us and we got blown up and it was they just uncovered it enough so that you could drive over it (laughs) the area we were in was you know those little outcropping mountains not mountains Mm -hmm. but they're like you know 25 foot high yeah. yeah crags right yeah and we were going in between two of those and what we figured out was that the stone 
surrounded the hole so that the blades and the mine rollers were just bouncing off of the rock. They weren't yeah. actually plowing anything. Right. Mm. And then we were the first wheeled vehicle. Mm, it went down into So it went down into the hole and it set it off. And that was, uh, yeah, it was just, it was fucked up. But we were all sitting there just like, God damn it. Now I have to extricate myself. Like I can't even clear to somebody. I have to clear out to somebody. And then we have to clear a lane to get a, to tow the vehicle. And I got stuffed into another lab with like 13 other guys. Like it was just a fucking shitty day. And that was at the end of a three day op down to Nakanae. And it was about a kilometer and a half south of Massimgar. Like you could see Massimgar in the distance. <laughs> we're just like, as soon as we got hit, we're like, fuck. And the sun was going down. We're like, we're going to have to calf here tonight. <laughs> and yeah luckily the uh the badger crew commander he went on the radio and he was like i see a path and the uh patrol commander was like oh you see a path and he's like yep and he just dropped his blade and like <laughs> <laughs> drove a straight line to the road and he's like okay i found the road we're on the road let's go and so we just drove into asimgar that night but so that, that's one thing that i've noticed between the two that's similar Bulldozers are the wep- are the vehicle and weapon of choice in Panjway. You could do anything if you got a front plow and tread and a little bit of horsepower. Mm-hmm. Mat Vs, LAVs, strikers, Humvees, they get stuck all the time. They roll over, they crash, they get blown up. But you cannot mess up one of those bulldozers. I mean, you need like massive Serious. amounts of explosives. Yeah. Yeah. And when it's got say- its blade down, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna cut the wire or it's gonna push the push pressure blade bit. out yep. or it's gonna push the blast away. Man, yep. we just they, they all hit. should have had our own bulldozers, and we could have just taken that place in a week. Yeah, we'll just bulldoze <laughs> the whole fucking area, and you're done, right? <laughs> just extended line of bulldozers, and just drive. <laughs> just plowing uh, through. Hold on, I can make it. Delete. Let me get. Uh, let me call the general. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. have an idea. Yeah, get John Deere on the phone. Yeah, and it'd be like uh, it'd be like that scene from Avatar with all the. Uh, all the bulldozers are just pushing the trees over, and the dudes like you could make them remote too. Guys be sitting there back at calf, just like, Bruh. yeah. Um, but yeah, they actually P- took Panjway is now a, a tilt a parking field. lot. Yeah, parking <laughs> lot <laughs> done. Just um, no, but they actually took out one of our badgers near the end of the tour. Yeah, they they How blew they up that? one of. It was a big fucking explosion. Yeah, yeah, and a uh, monster. And then they they actually got lucky and they hit the engine and it started. Uh, it started to fire in uh, in the Badger, and then oh, the no. the round the sixty the machine gun round started to cook off, so everyone just got out of there. But it just fucked the road up now because there was bits and pieces of metal throughout the entire area that that thing had hit, and we we hit I don't know how many IEDs in that same area just because we couldn't clear it, just because it was right. literally so much metal. metal. Well, yeah. I mean that's something we talked about. And you talked about as well in the pre-interview, you had to learn to distinguish between the metal and the ground and, and what was a threat. And sometimes it was really, really hard yeah. when you're Spend using a metal detector to look for metal. metal IEDs. Oh, yeah. And it's just like going off all the time. Yep. Um, yep. You eventually just either you figure out what is the thing is we had extensive training, right? Like we actually trained on it and we sat and we would we would play with different types of metal. We'd put little pieces of aluminum down and we'd put some steel out and we'd put some a rebar out and we would just like whatever we could find and we would see what that sounded like. And we would, you know, you'd sit there with your eyes closed and you'd listen to it and you'd hear it as it came up to it. And you can actually, you can map out stuff. So when yeah. we did our training, they were like, here's uh, an anti-tank mine, 
right? And you can sit there and play around. You could basically like you're doing a, a recce or uh, cloverleaf it, mm-hmm. right? And you could find where the edges of that thing are. And then you could distinguish how big that was and you'd be like, oh, okay, cool. That That's what an anti-tank mine looks like. Um, and you'd be able to distinguish the sound of it. And you'd be like, okay, that this has a certain ring to it versus a certain twang to it. And the, so we got really good at it. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, is that you have to have that kind of training. You have to have mm. the time to work that into your memory and make it consistent. If you don't have that, then you're just swinging a fucking, you're basically swinging an extra dick, just like, woo, look at me, like, yeah. <laughs> look what I got. That's, that's exactly what we did. That's exactly just, what oh, look, we we're did. we're following the rules. We have a yeah, detector. We're doing what the you know the Sergeant Major of the brigade was dictating, or the yeah. RC South, and yeah, it, yeah, it, we're, it blew we're me away when like. Uh, I said earlier was I went to the intelligence cell um, <clears throat> within the engineer unit when I got back home and I was getting all the intelligence reports and I would pass them on to the CEO and I would give him my briefing every week or whatever. But I'd be like, you know, this is when we handed off the the mine lab for the Chia. The, we were, I was sitting there just like, why, what are we doing? And we started handing it out to the infantry guys and they were like, we should have more people with this capability. I'm like, they're not trained. They're, they don't have the experience in it. Why would you do that? And uh, So that they can go on missions without you, so they don't have to cancel missions because there's no engineer support. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. And that's exactly what like, it is. It's because like, commanders want to be able to go out and they want to achieve things. They want to do mission, They want to do more missions. They want to accomplish more than the last guy did so they can get promoted before he does. And the only way to do that is to keep going out. And there's a limited resource, engineers, that limits them from being able to go out under those rules. So like, hey, why don't we just give a squared away guy a mine detector? And yeah. then that squared away guy gets blown up. They're like, we're going to give the mine detectors to the new guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where, you know, we, uh, I mean, it did happen sometimes, right? Like the, or for us as well, but man, you, you can't, you can't rush clearances, right? And you just, you can't. There's a reason it's slow. There's a reason it takes a long time. Yeah, you want to be mobile. You want to be able to move. You want to be able to fight. I get it. Cool. Understood. Like, you can't. Right? Like, if you're standing in a minefield it. going like, let's do a section attack. You'd be like, well, people are going to die. Yeah. Oh, and it's know, not we, the we war for that. that. You know, yeah. there, there's a war where you have to do that. You're like, you know what? People are going to die. Yeah. We're going to want, but we still have to do the squad attack across the minefield. Yeah. Because if we don't, you know, the Nazis take over and take over the world. So we're going to do it. Absolutely. And Panjway like, was not the place or the war no, to make, no. take those kinds of chances. It just wasn't <clears throat> worth it. No. And really, I mean, like you're, you're just wasting time. You're wasting effort. You're wasting people, people. for what? for what like it, it blew me away i was listening to your guys podcast at one point and you guys were like yeah we had no idea where we were going we just like we'd get on the plane and then we'd show up in afghanistan i was like how <laughs> we we took a year specifically training for kandahar specifically training for it and not just as a whole like we're gonna go anywhere it's like as an engineer your job is x you will do X a million times until you are fucking proficient at it, period. And that's how we did it. And then I was listening to you guys and it's like, yeah, we came out of basic and then I showed up in my unit and, uh, and then I was in Afghanistan and I was like, <laughs> like, like what? Month and a half. That's, Month the, and rep- half that's the rapidly deploying, that's, never knowing what's going on. That's insane. US Army. Like yeah. if, but that's, I mean, if you look at it, 
when you know Canada went in and they got the NATO mission, it was a very narrow mission. It was yeah. you you are NATO and you are Kandahar. And yeah. that is it. That's all like Canada had such a narrow thing. Whereas the U.S. had such a large commitment, but, but not even counting fucking Iraq. Yeah. yeah. You know, overexerting ourselves in that way. But, you know, there's no way we ever could have done a year-long workup for a specific district. It yeah. wasn't even yeah. possible. Because they're going to change it. Even yeah. when I was a pilot, they're like, you're going to eastern Afghanistan, you're doing the ISIS fight. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I was there for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, oh, now you're going to Kandahar, and now you're going to Coast, and now you're going here. Are you going to run an operation in Bagram? And it's too few resources, too large of a commitment. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the Canadians were smart, or forced to be smart by given a very limited, you know, commitment and able to put all the resources into it. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the AO was like way bigger than what we should have had. Like when we left, uh, when we left Frontenac, just Frontenac itself, the FOB, we got replaced by a division. And we had a company there. And we were just like, we did not have the resources to man yeah. an entire province like that. But we managed. We made do. Yeah. We did what we could. And, um, you know, I think we did pretty well. And I, I've heard many times that people are like, you know, the the Afghans saw the Americans as invaders. They saw the British as invaders. And they saw the Canadians as peacekeepers. And we were still, we were we were kicking ass and taking names yeah. and doing our job. But mm. I think there was a different mentality just from our previous experience as a military to the way we applied ourselves when we actually were fighting. Yeah. yeah. And there, there was just, uh, as I think you and I, uh, we were all talking in the, the pre-interview and I was like, you know, the biggest difference I ever noticed between an American and Canadian is that the, the likelihood at which we'll come to blows. So if someone's mm. sitting there and, you know, uh, pissing off your girlfriend or doing something stupid or being in a bar, the likelihood that you're going to come into an actual physical altercation is pretty high versus with an, with an American, with an American. Yeah. Versus yeah. with a Canadian, we'll, we'll try and talk it out a lot further. We'll try and, or we'll just leave and be like, whatever, man, cool. Like, sorry, let me buy you a beer. Here you go. And it, it, it's true. Like it's, it's a yeah. stereotype, but stereotypes <laughs> come from uh true acts. Right. And that's how right. we've done it. I, I had um Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Pat Stogren on my podcast we talked about leadership but he was in charge of the initial invasion at 02 uh, mm. for the Canadians he ran the 3 PC, 3PCLI or 1 I can't remember who he was with but he ran that invasion uh, for the Canadians and he was like we were professional warriors we we would lead with an open hand and a gun on the pistol or a hand on the pistol grip right like <laughs> but it, the, the lead with the open hand was the way we would start and we'd always try and engage them engage people directly uh, as a person before shooting at them. Hmm. And it, it the, 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 the mentality of it, the psychology of it, I think it, it bleeds into how we fight. No. That's good. It's good. That's a good way to, to, to war with an insurgency. Lead I, yeah. an open ham, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you just keep your other hand on the trigger. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be right for it, right? <laughs> one, one hand's back here at retention. The other yeah, hand's out. Exactly, you know, right? Like you're yeah. just reaching out for a handshake, but you got your pistol in the other hand or you got your machine gun or whatever, like be ready for it. But And mm -hmm. I mean, the basics of martial arts, the basics of anything, when you start learning how to fight, the first thing is keep your space, keep your distance, make sure your hands are up, you know, try and create a space that you can control without engaging the person directly. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I've been studying jujitsu for a while now and that's, man, love, love it. If you guys get a chance to do it, 
do mm-hmm. it. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> but you're going to learn so much about yourself if you want to. <laughs> um, the biggest thing for me learning traditional martial arts throughout my life was man is space. Like, yes. right, keep space, right? You mm-hmm. want a distance. When I joined the, the engineers, same thing. Standoff. Space. Yeah. If you, <laughs> explosive standoff is huge. Mm-hmm. And everything about jujitsu is get closer. Get closer. Yes. It's very, <laughs> yeah. It's very opposite. <laughs> totally messed with my, with my brain, but. Uh, well, you think about it, you got to do one or the other. You yeah. either have to have the, the standoff to engage with a, with a firearm or a weapon, or you need to be so close that they don't, you need to deny them the standoff. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's. Yeah, and that's that's how we fought. Like when mm-hmm. um, the Sarapos prison break happened uh, during my tour, when they uh, attacked Sarapos prison and blew the walls open, and like, oh yeah, in Kandahar, eight hundred yeah. some odd friggin' uh, Taliban mm-hmm. got escaped. That I went on leave two days before that happened. <laughs> no, <laughs> so I came that was, back. Yeah, the first of many times that that, that yeah. prison has had a breakout. By the way. Um, when I came back from leave after three weeks, they're like, there's friggin' criminals everywhere and there's Taliban all over the place. And like the whole friggin' city's in chaos. We're all just like, well, I guess we shouldn't have left. <laughs> we should have just stayed here. And <laughs> fine when I was here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then we spent the next few weeks trying to catch these people and trying to bring them back in or trying to take them out or uh, stop them from getting to Pakistan and stop them getting through the desert. And it's like, it was just chaos. Um, well, I think that's the problem with the Afghan justice system. It was a sieve. Everybody got through. Yeah. You know, no matter how many people you arrested, cold, you know, with their hands on the trigger of an IED or in possession of a thousand pounds of HME, their brother knows a cousin whose father yeah. works for the interim government. And they they get out. Mm-hmm. Or if they are bad enough that they can actually prove that they did bad shit and they end up in a prison, they have no security of the prison and it gets the wall blown <laughs> open and they all escape. Yep. Like, how do you yeah. win a war if you can't even keep the people who are fighting the war from fighting it? Yeah. Well, that's a Without difficult killing thing. Them, of course. This I mean, is where the, pol- the political side of it came into it, right? Like, Canada got, we got hammered about handing off detainees. Like that, yeah. and we're just like they're Afghans. We're handing them to the Afghan government, and they're like, "Well, yeah. you know, they're going to get tortured." And we're like, "Yeah, of course they're going to get tortured. They're Afghans, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you have Afghans <laughs> trying to take out the insurgency in their own country, and they're going to use torture." Yeah. Okay, cool. It's their country, man. Like it's their laws. We're here to provide security. Yeah, I'm not here to manage a police yeah. task force we, and do all we this stuff. We never handed off detainees. No, mm-hmm. we we never we we nudge nudge. Yeah, and yeah. Then all of a sudden, he was gone forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I mean, Afghan justice out there. I mean, it is so foreign to people to the Western world. Like, yeah. So it's totally there's this. It, it's either upfront and completely brutal, or it is non-existent. There is exactly. nothing yeah. in between. Yeah. They yeah. either it's shoot either, you on the either, spot in the middle yeah. of the road, or. Yep. They they go through the procedure of arresting you only to let you out the back door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or leave the, yeah. the, the doors to the truck open on the back right. and you just walk out. Right. As, like, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, I yeah. saw this one thing. We were building uh, the road to Lacacal. And um, this is one, one of the few times we actually built the road. Like the engineers built the road. Right. Um, and we had bulldozers and stuff, uh, graders and all doing all the right stuff. And uh, I was sitting there watching Ring Road South. And <laughs> it just such a random occurrence happened there was a truck going this way and a truck going this way right so they're if i can actually see in the camera so they're going opposite directions and a motorcyclist decided that he was going to pass the one car in between the two cars going right 
and he hit one of the mirrors, right? And just like, and the whole, like everything fucking stops. And the two people get out, uh, the two vehicles pull off to the side of the road and they get out and they wander over. And, and I thought they were going over to check to see how he was doing. No. And they just start fucking laying the boots to him, right? They're just like, you stupid fuck. And they just start beating the shit out of him. <laughs> Me and my master corporal are sitting there watching it. We're just like, what the Beam fuck? America, what the fuck? Watch for motorcycle stickers on their car. Right, exactly. And then, they're kicking the cycle, motorcyclist while he's down. And then the A&P show up and we're like, oh, okay, the police are going to take over. This is going to be great. And we, the A&P like push the other guys off and they get them into their cars and they drive off. No insurance, right? This doesn't happen over there. There's none of that stuff. Uh, so the drivers leave and then the A&P guys take this dude, just drag him behind a building <laughs> And then we heard a random AK round go off. No. <laughs> I don't know what happened. And then the A&P just left. And we just sat there like. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That, that's it. That's Afghanistan. Justice, man. <laughs> Afghanistan, yeah. yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, uh, as we were talking earlier on my podcast, it's those kind of stories that you, you can't really share person to person no. unless the other person knows what you're talking about oh right? yeah right and we're going to share this with the world and they're going to get a little glimpse of it and they're most the average person is going to be like what it's <gasps> terrible it's, it's important that we that. share those stories though it's yeah. really yeah. important that we share them because there's this still this worldwide perception that nato american canadian forces went in and were the bullies and we're committing war crimes left and mm -hmm. right and we're murderers and you know that's still a common perception Oh, yep. you're just the conquerors of the world. It's like, no, the people that we were trying to help were murdering each other. Yeah. yeah. Like, we literally, the regularly. I've seen it. I've seen the AMP seen drag a dude out into the middle of the street, hands bound, turn him around, shoot him in Dang. the back with an AK, and left him there. Yep. Yep. Like, they, yep. they, they that's Afghan justice. Yep. Like, yep. and if you think that Americans and Western countries are cruel and brutal, spend a week in Afghanistan. Like you need some perspective if you think the American government is brutal. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I got a, I got another story for you, and it leads just exactly into that. So we had uh, we were standing on Sentry at the road project as we were building, and uh, these two A and A guys come up. So the Afghan National Army, right? Mm -hmm. And one guy has a hole in his leg, and the other guy has a hole in his arm. And we're like, we didn't hear any gunfights. Like, why are the, and they're coming in, they're bleeding and they're like helping each other along and blah, blah, blah. The medics start working on them and through the interpreters were like, what the fuck happened? Well, so they were walking to work together and one guy tripped, squeezed the trigger on his AK and shot his <laughs> friend in the leg. <laughs> it gets better. While then on the ground, his friend who shot him is trying to help him up. Like, let me get you up. We'll get you to the, the medics. We'll get you to the Canadians. So in mm -hmm. order to, uh, to relinquish the stain on his honor, he shot his friend in the arm <laughs> because he had shot him in the leg. And uh, then they oh, both man. proceeded to help each other to yeah. the post to get help. You know, and that, that is that is the best story about Afghanistan. Justice. That is that's Just, it. Like that yeah. that is Afghanistan. You, you smited my honor. My honor. That's Pashtun mm -hmm. Afghanistan. It is even. Pashtun. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's actually you a good know, question. The ANA that you worked with were they local or were they from the north like ours were? They were. We got new ANA pretty regularly, so we had some that guys were from the north. We had one Kandak show up, and they were from the north. 
and they were actually pretty solid. They were pretty professional, and they were they did the job well mm-hmm. for for Afghans. Let's just qualify that. <laughs> they weren't like to the level that we were at, obviously. Uh, and the guys that were working the omelet, uh, they were working them pretty well, and they would go on patrols regularly, and they actually did quite well. And then I think they got orders or they got transferred or they get their tour was over or whatever. And they, we got a new group and they were from the South and they were garbage. Mm. Just fucking garbage. I don't know if they were from Kandahar, but they were from the South, from like Uruzgan or from like one of the yeah. neighboring areas. Right. And they just, they didn't want to do anything. They sat around drinking tea. Uh, they, I saw a really neat way to skin a sheep though from them. Uh, yeah. They cut a small hole in the leg and then they stick an air compressor in it and just blow it up it's like a fucking balloon. Really? And yeah. all the skin goes. It saves a man a lot of trouble. Yeah. And then they just, you know, you take a knife and you go. Yeah. And you huh. peel it off like a jacket. And I was just like, that's a fucking stellar idea. <laughs> I think I'm going to use that. Maybe I'll try it on a deer someday. But, um, but yeah, no, they never. Yeah. They, they rarely patrolled. They rarely did the job. Every so often we'd see one dude or two guys who were like solid and there to fight and do the job and they would get killed pretty fast. And then, yeah. Yeah. And that was that. And then but you didn't, you yeah. didn't patrol with them. Did you? Not normally. No, we yeah. were very, it was the omelet team, the occupational mentor and liaison team would patrol with them directly. And it would mm. be like half a dozen dudes with a platoon of infantry. And they gotcha. would, or like they half, just, just half a dozen Canadians with a, uh, right. Afghan platoon and they would go on patrols and do stuff. That would suck. Just like police mentors or like advisors yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then um, every so often when we did work with them, for some odd reason, we pretty much got shot at every time we did work with them. Um, I wonder why. But hmm. they have, the one thing, they have no fear. Like, they didn't give a shit. Yeah. And uh, I watched seven of them sprint into machine gun fire like a breast, seven in extended line shooting RPGs off their shoulder mid run <laughs> into machine gun fire. And we were just sitting there like, well, yeah, because it's their buddies that were shooting at them and they weren't going to hit them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, maybe, <laughs> but a well, lot of them were just that. like, they were like, inshallah. And we're yeah, like, that's oh. true. That, that's a real thing. Okay. Yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> yeah. We've watched them boot IEDs, just like suspected yeah, IEDs. So they'll yeah. just run up and just kick it. Turn and like, up. Like everything in your brain is like what? I tell you, man. There's a um, there's a direct relation between like what's the right way to say this? Because we usually try to keep things fairly fairly clean in terms of. I, I think I messed second. that up already with my story. <laughs> no, 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 you're no, fine. You're fine. Um, there's a direct relation between the amount of comfort and wealth you have in life, and how much you care about preserving that life. Yep. That's and true. going to Afghanistan and you see like the brutality of it. No, if you were just there as a passive observer, you see the brutality of Afghanistan mm-hmm. through the stories that we've just told, right? But when you're living like when you're living and you're sleeping on like a like a rock floor and you never had a shower and you don't know what air conditioning feels like and you you don't have clean water, you don't care if you die. You know, like there's a direct proportion between you know, beer and aluminum cans and air conditioning. I think, oh, my life's pretty easy going. I kind of value it. Yeah, but if you, I'd if like you to live keep your living life, it, <laughs> I'd like to keep living it. But if your entire existence is just like miserable, you know, farming dirt and yep. dealing with war all the time, you don't care. You know, like yep. you don't, you only really care as much. So like you're willing to charge into 
machine gun fire firing RPGs from the, from the yeah. shoulder because you know if you die, it's probably better on yeah. the back end. You know, well, the, and they're taught to believe that, right? Like that's yeah. it, it is better on the other side of it. And yeah. if you die in a glorious manner or whatever, that you're you're that's you're good to more, go, right? Yeah. That's so I'll, I'll give you a non panjoy anecdote with the good. whole inshallah. Yeah. Is in helicopter training, it was incredibly common when pra- practicing emergency procedures for Muslim students to just, inshallah, hands off the controls. <laughs> what, ha- what happens, happens. What, and then American struck me like, inshallah, my ass yeah. landing this thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's not a, it's not like critique on them. It's just that, like Luke said, there's a certain point where like, if I die in a helicopter crash, I'm a hero, Yeah. you know, or, you know, I've done everything that I can. It's in God's hands now. And there's yeah. a legitimate belief that their lives yeah. are in their God's hands. Yeah. And it's this is not a criticism of their religion at all. It's actually it's just, almost kind of it's almost kind of a compliment that they believe so strongly that you know Allah has their best interests in mind. Yeah. So if I'm going to run across this field and face machine gun fire, or I'm just going to let this helicopter land itself or something, yeah, like it's in God's hands. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's a very Western thing to want to control everything. It is to have yeah, complete that's control. That's true. Um, I heard, and in some, I, but in some cases, you, you need it. Yeah. Like when you're flying a helicopter, you, you are in control. <laughs> or you're putting your hands down range. Like that's... God, God cannot fly a helicopter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if he could, he would, but he can't. If, if he could, he wouldn't because he knows how dangerous they are. Okay. Well, anyway. the, uh, I heard there's this great story from uh, a buddy of mine who was on tour with me. Uh, he had been on tour in Aunt Medusa as well. And he was like, you know, these, these people will shoot over top of walls. They won't look and they will shoot and they will tell you that, you know, Allah guides their bullets. Hmm. And, and he was just like, I, you know, Allah might guide your bullets, but the principles of marksmanship guide mine. And and that's the way it is. And I was like, yep, that's a, that's a damn good point. And that's, that's how it always happened. When we did get shot at, we engaged them very directly and heavily Mm. and the engagements weren't long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I would agree that, is very rare for us to be very deliberately engaged. Yeah, yeah. Um, to know that they were intent on shooting at that person at that time. A lot of times it was just yeah over exactly. the wall. Whatever they got. the Americans off. Let's slow them down. You yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it. Uh, we did one operation called um, Teamus Prime, and so when you look at it, it's written Op Teamus Prime, which was just fantastic. Optimus, and Optimus, Optimus Prime. Prime. Yeah. That's and, awesome. Uh, <laughs> We it was one of the few times on tour where we got the four two nine, which is our um it's a rule of engagement number, which basically mm-hmm. says that anything in this area is an enemy. Ooh, period. Nice. And so there was like days of leaflet drops and like, hey, mm-hmm. we're coming in. If you're here, we will kill you. If you are here, we will kill you. And just constant yep. for a few days ahead of time. And then uh they it started with um I think it was a day or maybe it, it was a lot. We They just, like, bomb run after bomb run after bomb run. They just fucking leveled that thing. And then we sent the entire battle group in. And it was like, we were, we were fucking... We called it Operation Sapper's Vengeance because we had just lost our recce team three days mm-hmm. before that. They were actually doing the recce for this operation. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we went to town and there were, like... <laughs> yeah, there was... The, the resistance that we, we did encounter, I wasn't actually on the op, I was on QRF, I was just sitting there waiting for them to call us. Um, but there was, the resistance was short-lived. 
Because we had like main battle tanks running down the streets. Like, yeah, you can't fight <laughs> Canadian or American forces head on for, with no. much longevity. Yeah, no. um, not not if they've got free fire. If they've got yeah. free will, then <sighs> yeah, I'm, and I'm, that, I'm, it yeah. saved a lot it's of people. The, the rules of engagement that we had saved a lot of their lives because they understood yeah. that you know if they didn't have a gun, we couldn't shoot them. They figured that out very quickly, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the neat things was we found out that the integration of Canadian and military stuff helped us out quite a lot. So we had drones. We had really shitty, shitty drones. And we used to call them the flying skidoo <clears throat> because you could hear them for miles. All you could hear was me mm-hmm. and they were, flying they were just garbage. We could barely use them. Their range was just nothing. But every so often we shoot them up. And the uh, the insurgents would figure out that when they heard that, there was a drone above and they would hide. And we'd be like, cool, awesome. And then when it disappeared, they would come out and start engaging us. What we figured out very quickly was that they were doing it. And so we would uh, we would start using ours when we had a predator or a reaper ah. in the air. <laughs> so we would get them to hide for a little while and then we would park it. And then they would come out and start engaging us and the reaper would just be like, yeah. done. Thank you very Splat. much. And yeah, so, nice. you know, you've, you guys have talked about this and I've talked about this is that the, the, the way in which we had to adapt to the fight, just every, every day was a different fight. We yep, try right. this, we try that. They try something, we try something. We like the whole road project was an experiment, right? Like it was, let's see if we put a road into their fucking heartland, see what happens mm. and then go from there. We, wa- yep. I watched, uh, we were driving down the road once and I saw, these puffs of smoke just off in the distance. And I was like, well, that's weird. And then like, they don't have anti aircraft. Like they don't have flak cannons or anything. (laughs) There's no reason I should be seeing little puffs of black smoke in the distance. And eventually we figured out what they were doing was they were shooting RPGs into the the sky and trying to figure out at what range the self-destruct mechanism would go off in order to take out the Kiowas. Mm. And the unfortunate part when you do that is you give away your position. <laughs> so the Kiowas went in there and just fucking lit them up and they were done. But that was because we would have the Kiowas, they would do these little snake runs where they would go like this back and forth over top of enemy territory to try and draw fire. And then the Apaches would suck them. And then so like they, every day would be different. Like, well, the Kiowas are going to do something crazy. Now the Afghans are going to do something crazy. And then the yeah. Apaches are going to... Ch- uh, fix that and then we're going to have to do something else and like Afghanistan was a fluid battlefield that every day you don't know like it, you just got to be ready and yeah. see what happens when it happens and it's uh, yeah it was a it was a shit show so eight months of just constantly adapting and constantly fighting and constantly trying to figure out what we're going to do next and where we're going to go and who's going to be who am I with and am I with these guys or am I going there or am I doing this it was uh it was stressful like that really really works your brain a lot what stands out what stands out most to you about your experience in panjoy um for me because a lot of it was on qrf it was cleaning cleaning up Hmm. so a lot of it was we would show up on the after effects so we Hmm. the few times few times that we actually got blown up where we were on convoy where we were driving or we were doing stuff that was a different mindset kind of situation because we were on operation, right? Like we're 
if in particular, like right after my lab got blown up, we went on another operation and our section got split in half and one half of my section got put in a Buffalo and one half got put in <clears throat> the other engineer lab. And the Buffalo took our position where my lab would have been. And they hit a massive IED, massive IED. It blew four of the six wheels off of the Buffalo. It wow. put the deck of the Buffalo so deep into the crater that they walked off the top of the deck, just straight onto the ground. Yeah. Wow. And, um, you know, it hurt. Uh, my buddy was in it. He got hurt, got thrown into the ceiling and messed up his back. But had that been my lav, Shredded you. we would have been fucking toast, right? Like yeah. my whole section would be gone. Um, so, but that's on operation, right? Like we're, we're going to an area, we get hit, that's kind of expected. When you're QRF, it's, you're just sitting there waiting, and then all of a sudden it's go, yeah. and you're off. And you don't know where you're going, sometimes you're still asleep, sometimes you're still like reeling your gears in the truck, but you don't know what's happening, and you're trying to get dressed, and all of a sudden the, the ramp drops, and you're just like, okay, where am I? And you could be anywhere. You yeah. could be on Ring Road South, you could be deep into the into the pants, you could be out in Nakanay, you could like, it... <laughs> You don't know. Well, you're, and you're always showing up to somebody else's worst day. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So we'd get out and we'd have to clear, or we'd go and stand sentry, or you'd go and be part of the cordon, or you'd... And I mean, you guys know this as well as when you're sitting on cordon and you're just waiting for EOD or you're waiting for something else to happen, the Afghans get annoyed and they try, mm-hmm. try, try and go around you. <laughs> and then they, you know, we have a lot of times where there'd be a tank in the road pointing down the road and a car would stop in front of him and then the car behind him would try and go around and then a car behind him would try and go around and we'd end up with like 17, 18 cars just like trying to Shoot scoop to out the side of our cordon yeah. and we'd have to like line this shit up so that people couldn't get through. Um, And so, yeah, it was just constant stress, constant like it's, you're always on. And then as the engineer, you're, you're, you're expected to clear every time. So you got to clear your way there you got to show up, you got to clear the area to make sure there aren't any secondaries or there aren't any, um, any more hazards. And, you know, I told you guys about clearing a, a Marine IED strike and finding a, a thermite grenade that had been like curled up <laughs> just from the, the explosion, just laying on the ground there. And we were like, well, shit. Uh, and my, uh, my master girl picked it up and like, was like, Hey, cool, man. Look at this. And tried, <laughs> just crazy crazy stuff but uh the 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 consistency of it Mm. just just wore us down and it was just Mm -hmm. we were always on and i mean you guys know it like when you're on patrol ops and you're just you go on patrol and you come back then you get some sleep and you go on patrol again and you come back and you go on patrol again and you come back and you go like that was that was all we were doing and it was always to something bad the grind man yep the grind and as as a as a canadian veteran when you look back, I mean, Canada's not really involved much in Afghanistan anymore. So it's safe to say that their commitment is mostly done. You know, when mm-hmm. you look back on Canada's time in the war on terror, what's, what are kind of your reflections on that as to whether, just, just in general, really? We were handed an impossible job and we got it done. That was Good. like, that's the pre-standard for Canada. <laughs> We, uh, you know, World War One. we like, hey, man, you see that hill over there? Everyone's tried to take it. Why don't you go give it a shot? And we did it. Um, we want you to hold Passchendaele. With what? A couple companies. Have fun. <laughs> Against what? Oh, the, the best the Germans have to offer? 
awesome thanks we're gonna work on that <laughs> hmm. um you know world war ii taking the entire left flank of the advance uh across europe like that was that was insane for a country of our size we sh- we always step up to the plate and we always uh punch up pretty much every time and uh so yeah, afghanistan was the same thing we just we got handed a job and we did the best we could we forged a like i said a generation of warriors that uh, are now we're experiencing what i call a uh, veteran renaissance right now we have guys that are combat veterans we have uh, peacekeeping veterans we have people that are doing all kinds of awesome stuff now they're creating forges and starting businesses and making t-shirts and like you name it they're we're getting involved in mental health and we're creating nonprofits and we're like we've checked the box as we said earlier mm-hmm. we've been we've tested ourselves we came through okay and now we're ready to to push forward so yeah i'd say that'd be my my takeaway i guess nice <laughs> well the uh the way we normally kind of close these things out man as you know so we give everybody a chance to just say anything that's on your mind anything that we haven't covered like the floor is yours sir so drive it home um i think this is what you guys doing here are is exactly what's needed we need a very hard look at where we have sent our troops for years right this mm-hmm. is we we both Canada and the US have I think gotten to a point where we are so secure in our own situation here in Canada and in the US where you know you don't expect violence on a regular mm-hmm. basis and I think what you're doing is bringing that home and saying like you know we may not have violence here but we sent an entire generation or two to violence to do violence on our behalf and we need to make sure that everyone recognizes that it was on behalf of the people that we sent them not because the government went not because you know the government at the time said this is bad i don't like this none of us ever went because the government said you know we didn't have the big uh the the big propaganda posters of like uncle sam like we want you Mm. no we we saw that it was needed and we went and we did the job and that was the job that we were sent to do and it is violent and dirty and damaging and horrible but it also shows us the the greatness that is us as soldiers as veterans as people and what we're capable of right as you said earlier we're capable of unbelievable acts of bravery and courage and brotherhood and like you, you name it but at the same token we are also capable of horrific horrible dirty damaging things and we need to be able to accept that if we're going to keep doing this shit yeah i appreciate that man because i think uh one of the lines that i keep landing back on is that it's a big ask right it's a big ask to send young men and women to war to face those things in a in a war that's not going to change the ties of history because society whether you want to account for it or not as a member of that society has asked those people to do it. So I appreciate the wisdom in that statement, man. And, and I think I speak on behalf of all the veterans that followed can, uh, the Canadians in the pantry. We appreciate all the hard work you put into place. 
Especially making Spare One Guard. Spare One Guard. Like, yeah. Especially making Spare nice, One Guard. The nice, luxurious like, resort that it was. Yeah, you guys yeah. had a fucking good go out there, man. Spur was beautiful. I oh, I was there twice, and I was just like, man, I, I want to come back here. It, but... Yeah, it was a great spot. Because yeah. we landed, and we had, we had Tesco's were filled. The fucking gates were in place. The, the, the comm contract security up. was, yeah. the was contract working. security Fuck, was man. already are... leveled up and in place. It was loving it. Loving great. it. We, I got this one last story to tell you guys. And it was kind of hilarious because I spent me and my section spent two weeks filling Hesco, building up the, uh, defensive cordon around the headquarters building in Massengar. Mm. So we went mill one Hesco three high. Oof. And then we, we, built this like parking lot basically for all the gators and the the vehicles that they were using to run around the base. Mm-hmm. And so we spent all this time, we had the crane out and we're filling shit and like we spent all this time building this. And then we were just about to put the overhead protection, the big corrugated steel uh, overhead protection on top of the Hesco to cover in that area and make it safe. Mm-hmm. And our commander at the time was like, you know what? No, it's like six o'clock. Let's go get some dinner. We'll come back tomorrow and we'll put the roof on. It's, you know, three high mil one. There's no way they're going to get a rocket in. It's going to hit and impact the side of it because that's just how they shoot it. And we're like, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Let's go for dinner. Guess where that rocket landed that night? Right in the middle. <laughs> yeah. We, the, somebody had parked an LS in there, uh, like a light vehicle. They just parked uh-huh. it in there to use later and fucking rocket. <laughs> <laughs> right there onto that thing we were just like yep that, well, that think fucking sums it up <laughs> that says a lot just like it says a lot that one of my favorite mementos from my deployment is when we first got there we first got the spare one guard and i was in my bunk and i was like just checking it out and i pulled this little green tab and i pulled it out and it was a canadian flag it was an ir flag in canadian nice. and i still have that flag man wicked I kept it and I was like, this is good. Like, you know, this is something that's important to keep because them boys was here doing some fucking work so that we mm-hmm. can come in here and live in luxury. So <laughs> we appreciate our great white north to the neighbor or neighbors to the east, north up there. Southeast. To the east for Alaska. <laughs> southeast, southeast, north. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I. The great I, in between. Yes. Well, I, I appreciate it too, man. We, uh, there's a lot of us that we, we really wish we hadn't left the job half done. Right, but uh, we at the end of the day have to do what the politics say. And if well, they you say did the job home, that you were there to do at the time. At the time, exactly, yeah. and that's what we did. So we we appreciate you guys stepping in after us. Uh, but uh, you could have like you know fixed the place up a little bit or something. But <laughs> just <laughs> it, it, it was fine when I left. Okay, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like that line. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was fine before I left. I don't know what you guys did, but yeah. Geez, yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's it. Uh, I really appreciate again what you guys are doing here because this is this is really important and it's something that will it gives a, a little view, a little view into what we all did out there and the the dirt that we chewed together and it because uh, yeah we weren't in the same tour we weren't on the same place in the same time but we we all know the taste of that dust. Yes, Perfect. indeed. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chance. My pleasure, yeah, man. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pandroy Podcast. If you liked what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. New episodes every Monday on all major podcast platforms, Facebook, and YouTube. Visit www.thepandroypodcast.com for more information.